An emergency is a situation that requires an immediate response to prevent a catastrophic outcome. And that is exactly where we find ourselves. You mentioned the carbon budget uh, is very small to stave off high-risk climate change. Uh, and we're going to burn through that budget in less than a decade at this point. And so we have to make very big steps. We have to make them very fast. Tech, from a technological standpoint, we know what those steps are, and we know how to do them. It's culturally just getting ourselves to do it. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. What you're about to hear is another conversation recorded pre-corona. Working on the edit reminded me of a quote from Scott Galloway, marketing professor at NYU's Stern School of Business. Scott says that the notion that after corona, things will never be the same is just BS. On the contrary, he says, after corona, things will never be more the same, just accelerated. Well, in case you forgot, we're facing a few other big multidimensional challenges that require coordination across myriad aspects of a global society. Climate change is one such challenge. And so when Professor Rob Davies visited Missoula in February to keynote Climate Smart Missoula's big climate event, I was so jazzed to get some time with him. Rob is not only a top-flight scientist, he's also a gifted and passionate science communicator. Climate conversations often leave us feeling helpless, but Rob's view is much more hopeful. Not because the problem is small, but rather because we have not yet even begun to take it seriously. The conversation surfaces so many important and timely ideas, and I'm excited to bring you Dr. Rob Davies right now. Okay, so we're here today with Professor Rob Davies. Rob, thanks for coming by the podcast. Justin, thanks very much for having me. So you are in Missoula for the big climate event put on by Climate Smart Missoula speaking tonight, and we're fortunate to get some of your time. Why did you say yes to this invitation? You know, I, I pretty much say yes to just about every invitation I get if I, if I can. Yeah. Uh, I teach, and this is a particularly heavy semester, but um, I've got a small, small army of TAs as well, so I, they, they help me pick up the slack. And uh, this spring, has been, uh, there's been a lot of interest uh, from mountain towns. It's, it sprung out of a conference, I think, that a bunch of people went to, including the people who've invited me here uh, in Park City last fall. I gave a talk there, and that generated a lot of interest and in, uh, quite a few invitations for the spring. So I've been doing – I did a Colorado tour a couple of weeks ago, and we're in Montana this week. And you're finding your, your message resonates in these mountain towns? I would think so. It's a pretty engaged, um, you know, environmentally-minded group of folks that live in these places. It seems to be. I uh, the, the meeting in Park City was Mountain Towns 2030. It was the talk about the special challenges mountain towns and mountain resort towns are facing with climate change. Right. And uh, mine was one of the keynote talks, and it seemed to resonate. And um, I think people left energized and wanting to engage their communities as well and feeling like um, having their communities hear the same information they heard was going to help them. So I think that's what, what is driving it. Sure. So you are a member of the faculty at Utah State University, and that's where you did your Ph.D. work as well? That's right, yes. Physicist. Yes. When you hear physicist, I mean, most people don't sort of think uh, climate science communicator, but let's talk about um, your academic background a little bit. How did you get interested in, in physics, and, and why did you choose to sort of make it your field of study? 
Sure. Well, I mean, that, that question for me goes all the way back to my childhood. I grew up in the Black Hills in South Dakota. Okay. And um, very rural and, of course, very uh, wild. All my days were spent outside, <laughs> you know, and uh, either running or skiing or rafting or uh, any of those things. And um, just so, and that engenders, I think, uh, with most kids, a really a real fascination with, with nature. Uh-huh. Um, in my case, it I think it followed a, a pretty common route. I'm fascinated with geology and dinosaurs, and then I'm fascinated with astronomy, and then I'm fascinated with being an astronaut. And, and um, in those days, back that was in the 70s, uh, if, if that was the path you wanted, then, then a, a good solid science degree mm-hmm. uh, was going to be you know, the underpinning for moving forward. So I, I decided to study physics and, and love it, yeah. But not just study physics. I mean, you didn't go on to be an astronaut. You didn't go on to sort of do those those right. different domains. You, you <laughs> decided to become an academic. You spent some time in the Air Force too, if I'm correct, right? Yeah. So I went through uh, the university on an ROTC scholarship in the Air Force, and they wanted me to be a meteorologist. So after okay. I finished my physics degree, they wanted me to get another degree in meteorology, atmospheric physics, uh, which I did at Texas A&M for a year. And then served in the Air Force for three more years, and then decided to get out and and go back into graduate school in physics. And I moved away from atmospheric physics. I did something called surface physics and looked at fundamental interactions between uh, surfaces and the space environment. Yeah, which, you're gonna have to explain that a little bit more <laughs> to, to so, my beginner's mind here. What is surface physics? So this is just a, the the what's happening on a microscopic, even atomic scale on on surfaces. So, okay, and in my case. What was motivating it, the research I got involved with, was that when you throw a spacecraft up uh, in orbit around the Earth, uh, it's actually subject to a pretty harsh environment. There's lots of charged particles. There's there's intense uh, light from the sun, uh, ultraviolet included. And this does all kinds of things to a surface. It causes it to emit electrons. It causes it to um, change its, its uh, sort of fundamental structural features. Uh, so I looked at sort of the... Uh, how a particular piece of this spacecraft charging. So you, you bombard the spacecraft with stuff and then what comes off and what happens. And I was doing the basic physics of that. And then the application, the people who were using my work were, were in spacecraft design. Um, but I was interested in the, just fundamentally what's, how are the electrons uh, interacting in these services. Uh, when I left, uh, I, uh, I spent a stint with uh, NASA and the International Space Station in Russia just... Um, uh, I had spent a stint in R- Russia earlier as a grad student as well, okay. so I spoke Russian, and, and NASA was interested in that. They were building the space station together with the Russians. And that was just kind of a break. Uh, it was fun. I wrote procedures uh, for the equipment, for the Russian pieces of equipment, and trained the crews on those procedures, and um, that was fun. Uh, did that for a year. It's and, interesting and to then, hear you describe yeah. that as a break. <laughs> it was well. They were, you know, they weren't asking me to do math or anything, really. I right. Just, I did I, this uh, little stint with NASA as a break from my actual real hard job as a physicist. So I wasn't right. I wasn't designing stuff and building stuff with them. I was just uh, helping the crews learn how to operate some of the some of the equipment that the Russians had designed. Right. Right. Um, and I think my appeal to Russia was uh, to NASA was not so much as a physicist, but that I spoke Russian and that I spoke. Aerospace Russian. Sure. <laughs> Russian, and he spoke science. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but that was quite interesting. And, of course, the people who worked on that project, uh, the engineers and the staffs and the crews, the crew members were all, of course, accomplished and interesting people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a lot of fun. 
Um, anyway, left that and, and got a, did some regular gigs that one normally does after grad school, some uh, visiting assistant professor jobs and sure. some postdoctoral work. And in the process of that, did uh, got involved in a kind of a new field for me, which was called quantum optics, uh, okay. quantum mechanical behavior of light. Um, did a research post in England at Oxford University on that for a couple of years. And that's where I actually, that's where my life took a turn. And, okay. and I was having a lot of fun in Oxford. Um, and the, the physics was wonderful and the people I was working with were wonderful and smart and, and interesting. Uh, but I ran in, right next to my laboratory was a, a place at Oxford called the Global Change Institute. And I mm. ran into a couple of the researchers there one night at the pub. And uh, we got to talking, and they, they work on climate change, and I, I hadn't really thought about it that much for a while. Um, and this was 2005, 2006. Okay. And I just became really struck with how much science understood about what was happening and, and the gulf between that and what the public understood. started going to a bunch of the seminars at that, at that institute and um, was coming up on the end of my appointment in, in the position I was in, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to take a year off and... <laughs> I think like many physicists, was quite arrogant about my ability to explain things to people <laughs> and thought, you know, I think I can help with this. I think I'll just, I'll explain it to them and they will understand and then we'll... It's all, all it takes, it's right? All it it's takes. scientists talking um, more to the people. And of course, any, anybody out there uh, who's done anything in public relations or, or sociology or psychology is just rolling their eyes. Of course, this <laughs> is not uh, what the challenge was. Um, so... Uh, so I went back to – I had a house in Logan, and okay. I just moved back there and said, you know what? I'm just going to take a year and, and do this on my own. I had a little savings stashed away, and I thought I can, I can do this for a year. Sure. But uh, a year turned into two. The demand was, was really interesting. I, I, I hung up a poster to give a talk in a bakery. A, couple, a local bakery said, yeah, you can give a talk here. And I figured four people would show up, and, you know, including the bakery owners. <laughs> And uh, 40 people showed up uh, to that first talk, and this was in early 2007. I mean, how did you approach that early, that early work in trying to communicate clients, climate science, having come out of physics? What, I mean, you, you can understand the science, I'm sure, um, but to then think that, okay, I'm in a position to be able to translate it. You mentioned that earlier, but like, how do you actually, how did you approach doing it right, right from the genesis? Well, I put together a slideshow, sure. yeah. <laughs> you know, um, all Al Gore, really. <laughs> right. Inconvenient <laughs> you know, Truth. We talked sure. about that before we started recording. Um, not, not unlike what, what he had done. And I, um, and I told the story a bit differently. Uh, you know, he's not a scientist and he doesn't pretend to be. And so he has a particular way to, into that conversation. I am a physicist and I had a background in atmospheric physics and meteorology, which um, is a different in uh, mm -hmm. for an audience. So I put together... Uh, I just put together a, uh, a talk, and that talk evolved as I gave it more and more, and you see what are the questions that people have. Uh, and um, so that was 2007. Uh, the Utah Climate Center is there in Logan at Utah State University as well, and the director got wind of what I was doing and came to one of my talks and said, um, hey, this would be great if you'd come and do it for us at the Utah sure. Climate Center. Uh, so I did that uh, for a number of years, and that just kind of evolved into a position there. Um, but as you study and work on climate change, and, and it pretty quickly you see, and this happened to me quite quickly, that it's not just the atmospheric physics and the climate physics. Um, it's if you, what people want to know is what to do. And so uh, the obvious thing that we always talk about is the energy system, of course. But, and I didn't know that much about our 
Of course, I understand the basic physics of, of it, but I didn't know that much about an actual, uh, our municipal power systems and our national grid and things like that. So it began with studying that. But then you realize that, you know, the energy system is not the whole story. It's, a, it's an important piece of it, but um, the food system mm-hmm. is uh, something like a quarter to a third of our emissions, depending wow. on how you do the accounting. So uh, oddly, in my mind, I found myself studying agricultural systems and food systems. And um, and then you find out, well, why is the food system the way the food system is? And it's, well, it's the economic system that underlies Indeed. the whole thing. And so then you're saying, well, uh, now I'm studying economics and trying to understand uh, what it is about our current economic system that's generating. So, so basically what you... I started off thinking of climate change as the problem, but of course, what you find out is climate change is a symptom. Right, right. It's outcome, um, and there yeah. are other symptoms mm-hmm. um, independent of that that are uh, almost equally as, or as equally intense. Uh, are dramatic and detrimental impacts to the biosphere, the living systems on the planet, is another example, um, which I will talk about uh, at our our talk tonight, and I'll we'll, we'll mention that a little bit later, but. Um, and then what you're really after are root causes. And so uh, so pretty quickly I'm moving from climate change to a field that's often referred to as global change. And this is uh, the full suite of human impacts on the Earth systems uh, and the full suite of human systems that are generating these impacts and also the human, Im- uh, the human outcomes that are coming from these systems as well. And so... Uh, so I moved on from the Climate Center. Uh, Utah State University created a position, um, a unique position in, cli- in critical science communication that I uh, occupy now and is housed in the physics department mainly because I'm a physicist. And okay. universities um, uh, really want to do interdisciplinary work, but they don't really know how at an administrative level. <laughs> they don't know where um, to put people. That's they try. Sure. They try. But it's, it's just because of administrative. It's, yeah. if, I have, if you have a PhD in physics, they'll put you in the physics department. Um, and that works out just fine with me. I, I like being in the physics department. So that's kind of the route to where I am. So what I really do now is synthesize a really broad spectrum of, of sciences and humanities uh, to try to figure out what this full story is about the human uh, relation to the planet and what it means for us in the coming decades, for our well-being, for our vibrancy. Uh, and then figure out how to take that really broad spectrum of science and that message and hone it down and distill it into something that's understandable to the public right. and to policymakers and, um, and, and turn it into a narrative that's compelling enough, that connects to people enough that they're willing to respond uh, at an appropriate level. Yeah. So when you're thinking about that, like you're approaching an, an event like this evening, public event at the Wilma, um, probably a, a, just a general interested public audience, how are you approaching that audience? How are you kind of conceptualizing your message for an audience like that? And, and what, are you, what kind of response are you looking for from a group like that? What I generally find, I guess my expectations are based on, and I've done many, many of these talks, yeah. uh, my expectations are based on who shows up for the talks I give. Uh, and so it's going to be mostly people who already think that we have problems sure, um, and want to know more. Uh, it's not typically going to be your hardcore skeptic denier uh, crowd that says we don't have these problems and, and why are we talking about this. That happens occasionally, but not, not very often. Um, so it's uh, 
uh, it's going to be an interested crowd already. It's going to be a sympathetic crowd. They're going to be, they want to be there and they want to hear. Um, I also assume that they are somewhat knowledgeable. And um, that fits with polling that we do both regionally and nationally as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I find though, and this is true, uh, what I find to be true is most people don't really understand the scale of the challenges we're facing. Right. They don't understand the full context of the hum- of climate change and the and the broader spectrum of human impacts that it that this fits into. Uh, and they don't really understand the scale of the response that's required, the scale of the risks and the scale of the response. Um, and so that's what the talk that's what I mostly talk about. I mean, I give a, a range of of lectures depending on what uh, people want or ask for, but. Uh, even if it's climate change, um, lots of places, Montana included now, are really start, are poised to start taking big steps. Um, the organizations here in Missoula that you mentioned and um, just in Bozeman, uh, you've got the recent governor's panel just released their recommendations. Mm-hmm. Lots of communities are studying it uh, and trying to come up with climate action plans. So at, at this moment when everyone's po- poised to move forward, it's important to maybe take a breath and say, okay, let's make sure that the things we're going to do are going to actually be meaningful and fit in this broader picture. There are things that we can do to address climate change that synergistically help with other big problems. And there are things that we can do to address climate change that exacerbate other problems, other big problems. So it's important before we take those big steps and move forward that I, I think trying to help everyone get, a, get the full picture or as full as we can give and that's what I'm trying to do right now. So one of the ways, I mean, I've watched a, a variety of versions of your, your talks on, you know, various YouTube outlets and so forth. And one of the frameworks that kind of struck me was this planetary boundaries framework, placing climate science within a suite of or, you know, a, a set of issues and challenges facing the planet and humanity in general. Um, in some ways, that was illuminating in terms of just thinking about it at a systems level, in other ways, it was like, oh my God, we got all these other problems too. We got to balance as well. Well, that's exactly right. And, and so, for example, the talk I'll give tonight will uh, originated from uh, has its genesis in this planetary boundaries framework. I won't mention the framework tonight by name, um, but it's this is a framework that's come up in the last decade, uh, maybe ten, twelve years, and sort of originated with some researchers in Europe at the Stockholm Stockholm Resilience Institute. Will Stefan and uh, Johan Rockström sort of started it, uh, and it looks at what are the critical Earth system processes to humans and human civilization, um, and they identify nine, and the idea is to say, well, uh, they call these planetary boundaries. Together they form, in the lingo, an ecological ceiling. So this Mm -hmm. is what creates a place for us to live and survive on the planet. So things like uh, the ozone layer, um, our climate system, uh, our water system, our our, our what's called biogeochemical flows, which is a fancy word for nutrient flows, so particularly uh, nitrogen and phosphorus that cycles through uh, the biosphere and how that works. Um, And a few other atmospheric and ocean um, parameters, things like ocean acidity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea is to say, well, what are the pieces of the Earth system? What are these cr- critical processes? 
What are some metrics by which you can quantify them? So ocean acidification, for example, sure. is the acidity level, the ion level in the in the ocean water. For climate, it's the uh, there are two things. One is called the the radiative balance, which is basically how much energy is coming into the system versus how much is going out. The other one is the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And we could go on with these nine different things. And the idea is to find metrics that characterize them and then identify how much can we disturb those systems based on those metrics and still maintain the the environment that allows human civilization to thrive. Like how much stress can they take exactly. in a way? Yeah. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. I'm Larry Summers, Harvard President Emeritus and former Treasury Secretary. You're listening to A New Angle. And uh, another other of these planetary boundaries, of course, include uh, metrics on the biosphere, uh, biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that includes extinction rate and also population levels. So um, what they found is that out of these nine planetary boundaries, um, there are four that we are, I think, very clearly outside of any level of uncertainty uh, uh, busted through. And in other words, meaning that if we continue to impact it at this level for very long, human civilization can start to expect to see very large impacts on a global scale. Yeah not just regional scale. Um, and eventually this will be incompatible with an organized global civilization. And eventually meaning within the next five to eight decades. Okay. Um, and so it's a nice framework because within that framework you see that certainly cl- the climate system is a key earth system process uh, to us, but it's not the only one. And so our impacts on the biosphere are extreme at this point. And mostly not due to climate change. So it's not climate change that's impacting mostly the extinction rate and the loss of, of popul- species populations. Uh, it's a piece of it, but it's not the biggest piece. And if you fix climate change tomorrow, that impact and the real problem we have with it doesn't go away. The, the linking feature, of course, is that they're both symptoms, of an underlying pathology. Okay. And that underlying pathology is our hyper-consumptive global civilization mm. that we've created. And so this is what I mean then by um, it's good to see that addressing there are ways to address climate change that simultaneously address these other things. And we don't really want to address climate change as a symptom, ultimately. We want to under address the underlying causes. And I think this framework makes it very clear that that's true. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of... Interesting, because you know some of the the solutions to cl- solutions or the, the the possible solutions to climate change that get bantered about now are things like you know sending particles up into into the atmosphere that reflect light back or whatever. And some of these some of these things might be necessary to, depending on how things go, but they're they're sort of treating a symptom, not an underlying condition. That's right. So what you talk about is a class of of response pathways called geoengineering. Um, and, uh, of course, there are huge issues <laughs> with just about anything you can think of. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Uh, I mean, talk about, like, complicated solutions to enact across agencies, governments, societies, et cetera. I mean, so many interesting things to think through in terms of how feasible these things are. Exactly. 
And so, um, so certainly the approach that I take, and I would think that the vast majority of, of scientists across a, a wide range of disciplines who think about these things take do, do not really look at geoengineering solutions as uh, pathways, I should say, as, as desirable. Right. Yeah. But do you think it'll come to that, though? I mean, like, what are you – I don't want to put you on the spot with predictions necessarily, but it seems like the way you kind of lay things out there, it's like we've – We've got this thresh threshold for carbon, and we have this much carbon left that's accessible, mm-hmm. and that exceeds our threshold. And, and a lot of the predictions don't look good for our rate of, you know, well, at the moment, past these thresholds. You're right. Uh, the the task that's before us to to meaningfully mitigate climate change is enormous. Uh, it's not entirely clear that we can do it. Uh, there's no question that that is true. Uh, to the extent that it is a technological problem, we, we absolutely have the technology that we need. Uh, to the extent that it's an economic challenge, we absolutely have the economic uh, uh, means that we need. Mm-hmm. This is almost entirely at this point a cultural issue. Sure. Uh, and so the question of do I think it will come to geoengineering, well, actually the geoengineering um, proposals that are out there really just don't help. They create more problems than they than they solve. And so... I certainly expect that if there are people who, who start to try to pursue these pathways uh, in earnest, they'll meet enormous resistance. They just don't make any sense, ultimately. Um, can we walk through that, walk that yeah. through? Because I think sure. there are people out there that sort of, you know, they'll read an article on geoengineering and, and it sort of seemed like they'll have some intuitive appeal. Um, and then when you think it through, it breaks down. So let's maybe so, walk through one of those. So, well, let's take the issue, the the the... The proposal that you just mentioned a little while ago, which is to throw up sulfate aerosols into okay. the atmosphere. Now, aerosols are very tiny particles, but they're very large molecules. Think of it that way. And the structure is such that they do exactly what you said. They will reflect sunlight that's coming in back into space. And so that reduces the overall energy coming into the planet. That certainly would affect the warming. Um, what it doesn't affect is the underlying cause of the warming, which is the buildup of greenhouse gases. So okay. if, you, if you move toward this as a – and we'll just start with – if you move towards this as a solution, number one, you have to keep putting the sulfate aerosols in the atmosphere. They precipitate out after not very long. Now, we used to actually put sulfate aerosols into the atmosphere um, as a byproduct of burning coal. Mm. And the byproduct of the sulfate aerosols in the atmosphere was acid rain. And so we passed legislation that said we need to scrub those things out of there because the acid rain is detrimental to all kinds of things. Super, all sorts of unintended um, consequences. So we get back into the acid rain problem, number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also raised interesting political questions. Who gets to decide to do this? Because the United States could certainly do it. It affects the entire planet. What gives us the right? Right. Or suppose we don't want to do it, but the Russians decide that they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, and, and so it doesn't, it, you know, particles and, in this atmosphere are not really something you can localize, right? No, no. They can't they build get, a wall around it. The atmosphere is very well mixed. Um, and so so now, but then the, once you start this, if you are, aren't reducing your carbon emissions, of course, uh, the carbon continues to build up. Sure. And, um, and then as soon as you stop, because uh, civilizationally you can't keep it up, or you decide that it's the, the impacts, the, the knock-on impacts are getting bad, in the meantime, you've had all this carbon dioxide building up, and um, the warming comes right back with a vengeance. Hmm. Uh, so it doesn't really—it's not a—it's not a solution that that um, 
has a lot of appeal. And then, of course, we're talking about a very complex system here. And what we know is when we poke complex systems, they, they uh, respond in ways that we don't expect. So there are some things that we expect, and I can't believe I'm quoting Don Rumsfeld, but, uh, you know, his... his <laughs> the known uh, knowns and the known unknowns. Exactly. And there's that, but that part is true. There are the, the unknown unknowns and that... Um, we're talking about doing this in a, in a living system, uh, the Earth system, that is, is, has evolved to where it is. Right. Everything in it is very finely selected for the environment that it's in. So when you propose dramatically changing that environment... Um, almost all of the impacts you can expect will be negative. The systems are not evolved for those. Mm-hmm. You're taking things out of the system that they're, they're, they have self-selected to be well-suited to, and you're taking them out of that environment. And we're doing the same thing for human civilization as well, of course. Yeah. So, so they're not geoengineering, and there are a, a number of other proposals that all have similar... Uh, they break down on sort of careful scrutiny. Exactly. When you're thinking about this, I mean, I'm think, trying to just sort of resolve this tension between the level of the individual and the level of system. I mean, when you lay out the dynamics of the system, yeah, it is, it is delicate in many ways. Yet from the perspective of the ordinary citizen, we live in a world that's tremendously resilient. Like any one person's behaviors are, are essentially zero impact. Uh-huh. Um, now, that's a way of rationalizing bad behavior, I would suppose. <laughs> but... You know, how how do we sort of bridge that? When you're thinking about communication, how do you bridge that gap between the well, so, delicacy of the system and the actions of the individual? Well, so let's take that advan- uh, example that you threw out there, and I'll I'll um I'll say that I think it's not quite the right example that we want. You said uh, the the systems that we're embedded in are kind of are resilient to the actions of any one individual, but that's not really what we're facing okay. uh, with environmental change. What civilization is facing is a fundamental disruption of the environment, the full global environment to which civilization itself is very finely tuned. So this isn't one individual poking something. This is human civilization, which is embedded in this Earth system and the whole of that Earth system changing. And um, human civilization, it turns out, in fact, it's kind of exactly opposite to the the framing you just gave it. Mm -hmm. Humans it turns out, are hugely resilient to those kinds of changes. We are enormously uh, adaptive and creative and capable, um, and we live in every possible environment in this, on this planet. Human civilization, on the other hand, is not at all resilient to such changes. It is, in fact, fragile. Um, and, and a really good example of this, and there are many, many such examples, but one that's really easy to picture is sea level. So human civilization arose in this period we call the Holocene, the last ten or 12,000 years since Earth came out of the last ice age. Sea levels have been very stable mm-hmm. in the last 10,000 years. So population centers on coastlines. Um, uh, if we raise sea levels just a couple of meters, which is what we're on track to do by the end of this century in another uh, six, eight decades, uh, you displace 200 million people right now. Yeah. And you annually flood another 600 million. And, and when we start to think about how fragile uh, regional systems have been, social systems have been to the displacement of just a few million people, the forced displacement. And we can look at the, at the civil war across Syria and then the forced climate displacements of people across North Africa trying to make their way into Europe. And with maybe 7 million people displaced in that region, 
a couple, uh, one to two million making their way into Europe, we can see how hugely politically, socially destabilizing that has been. Now let's take and say that's not a few million people that have been displaced, but tens or hundreds of millions of people that have been displaced. And this is just from sea level rise. Right. And or places that are more salient, at least to people in the United States, for example, you put Manhattan underwater or the city of Miami, and it's a different ball game when it's right here in some of our most, some of our centers of power, centers of wealth, all of those things, centers of industry. Exactly. And so then you start to see that um, with respect to the global environment, human civilization is really not at all resilient. It's quite mm. fragile. Yeah. Which is what has led the Department of Defense, the United States Department of Defense, the Pentagon, to issue a dozen reports in the last two decades specifically referring to climate change as the single largest security threat that we face. Absolutely. Coming in the coming decades. Yeah. So, um, so when the risks are this big, we don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. So there are response pathways. Um, they're big and they're hard, but we have roadmaps for them. And uh, while it's not clear that we can do them, uh, it's also not clear that we can't. And so asking the question, is this doable at this point, is not a particularly helpful question because it's just not answerable. Right. And what we can see are very concrete next steps. And I would argue that that's what one does in a crisis, which is very much what we're in. And I'll, I'll use that word. Uh, sometimes that's, that's a little bit controversial to say that up front, that we're in an emergency. But I will say that certainly myself and the scientists, and there are many, many, many who refer to the situation this way, are using that term not hyperbolically, uh, but quite precisely. An emergency is a situation that requires an immediate response to prevent a catastrophic outcome. And that is exactly where we find ourselves. You mentioned the carbon budget uh, is very small to stave off high-risk climate change. Uh, and we're going to burn through that budget in less than a decade at this point. And so we have to make very big steps. We have to make them very fast. Tech, from a technological standpoint, we know what those steps are, and we know how to do them. It's culturally just getting ourselves to do it. And so that's really where the, the name of the game is at this point. Okay. Well, we're getting to the end of our, our time here. We've got to get you back over to the Wilma to prep for your talk. But let's talk about those steps. I mean, can we summarize those steps? And then in your view, like what are, if you were to sort of look in five, ten years, what are the critical kind of markers for progress that y you think have to happen? Sure. It's a, it's a great question. And uh, steps for individual people are, first and foremost, we just need to talk about this issue all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, we certainly need to inform ourselves. Uh, whatever your interests and whatever your talents, uh, there is work to be done in all of those things. If you're a farmer or a rancher or a chef or an architect or a lawyer or a banker, uh, there, uh, as well as certainly engineers and et cetera, et cetera, there's work for all of us to do in this. But you first need to know what it is. Uh, and we need to talk about it. And imagine if Pearl Harbor happened yesterday and nobody was talking about it. Right, right. You don't respond to a crisis uh, unless you recognize it as a crisis and are, uh, have a mindset that's appropriate to that. So the next, uh, in, but in terms of markers, the, the short answer is this. Um, the, 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 very sim the physics of this at the highest level is very simple, and that's more carbon is more risk. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a carbon budget. That's identifying a danger line and saying, well, how much more carbon can we throw in the atmosphere and stay, still stay below that line? Um, so we have that danger line. We have that budget. 
And what we need to do is cut our carbon emissions in half globally every decade for the next several decades. They need to be to zero well before 2050. As long as they're not zero, the carbon concentrations in the atmosphere still go up and the change continues. Um, and so I would say uh, 10 years from now, at the bare minimum, we need to be uh, at half our emissions that we're at today. Um, the United States unequivocally has the wealth and the technological know-how to do this and to lead the way for the rest of the world to do it as well. Again, it's a cultural question of getting ourselves to do it. When you're talking about doing it, you're talking about completely changing our the way we power our society, right? Not just power our society, but feed our society. Feed, exactly. Um, and our economic system absolutely has to transform. Mm -hmm. We have to move away from a system that requires continuous growth in order to thrive. Right. Okay. And there are models for economic systems like this. They're, they're not at all new. They're, um, and they uh, oftentimes referred to as steady state economic systems or ecological as opposed to environmental, but ecological environmental system, uh, economic systems. There's, we, could, we could do many shows on just those. The, sh the short answer is, but the, the good news is we have roadmaps for these things. Yeah. The bad news is uh, we are nowhere close to, to meeting the challenges that we need to meet. That's the bad news. The additional good news is we haven't even tried. Yeah, I guess that's a good point, right? Like you look at our current political climate, political debate, that the, these issues are so far from being robustly debated or discussed or engaged with. Um, and so, yeah, you could argue we haven't even tried. If you compare it to past emergencies, and World War II always comes up as, as, as a perfect metaphor for this, uh, maybe not perfect, but a good metaphor. Um, you know, to meet the emergency of World War II, we did all kinds of things that uh, you wouldn't do unless you had an emergency mindset. So um, everything was rationed. Fuel, yeah, uh, sugar, yeah. flour, meat, uh, any kind of building material. Um, millions of, of men signed up to serve, of course, and then and millions and millions of women also changed their life paths to go work in the industry that that um, that won that war. Congress, uh, in December of 1941, passed a law banning the sale and the manufacture and sale of new automobiles. The president signed that. It's something that we wouldn't think of as feasible, right, uh, under normal circumstances. But once you're in an emergency, the notion of feasible goes out the window and you say what's necessary. And in that case, they said, uh, Ford and GM, you're not making cars. You're making trucks. You're making Jeeps. You're making airplanes and tanks to meet this emergency. And citizens tightened their belts. We rationed everything. They bought war bonds. Uh, and unquestionably that is the scale of response that is required of us uh, over the course of this next decade. This next decade is, is the most important will, any of us will live through. Yeah, and I guess when you're thinking, I'm sort of thinking about like how do you kind of make people understand they're in an emergency without them sort of seeing that emergency, but at the same time like the, the, the Pearl Harbor analogy. I mean, Pearl Harbor's in this faraway place and you can't really see it or feel it if you're the average citizen in Iowa or whatever, but it's a mobilizing event. You know, that's a really interesting point. I'd never thought of it that way. Um, certainly, the, the American government took it as uh, an enormous thing and, and portrayed it that way to the American people. But who? And then it's not hard to say, hey, our Navy has been attacked. The fleet has been destroyed. 
you've got pictures of burning battleships yeah, and aircraft yeah. carriers. So, uh, but that narrative is being pumped up by the government. You can call it propaganda. Um, probably not inappropriate in, in that case. But one wonders if Pearl Harbor had been bombed, could, if they had wanted to, could Congress and the president have downplayed it, said it's not a big deal? Or just, yeah, completely hid it from the popular. I don't know if you can completely hide something like that. But then you think about, like, that's in a different media environment. Yeah. Fast forward to 2001, right, right. 9-11 was sort of a, a media event in a way. I mean, people watched the towers fall on their tel- glued to their televisions, a different type of experience. And, you know, in some ways, propaganda now is easier to execute than then. Right. But either way, right, you can downplay or amplify um, right, uh, and we've seen both happen. Uh, so your question is is a key question in how do we move ourselves to societally a mindset, an emergency mindset, which is wholly appropriate at this point, without that Pearl Harbor moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem with waiting for the Pearl Harbor moment uh, under these conditions is it could be a knockout blow. Right. Um, one could argue we've had dozens of Pearl Harbor moments and they haven't had the effect that we need them to have. Australia is on fire right now. California right. is always on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had these dr- uh, dramatic hurricanes, Harvey dropping five feet of rain on Houston a couple of years ago. Um, the, uh, the fire seasons we have in the West and the, just et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we're still not responding appropriately. So one does wonder what does it take? My answer would be storytellers. Um, I don't think it's going to be science lectures, and I think I give a pretty good science lecture. But I don't think it's be people like me giving science lectures that are f- going to push us over the edge to response. I think that helps. I think it, but I think it's it's our musicians and our filmmakers and our writers that have always connected us to these really important events. Think of our Bob Dylans and our John Steinbecks and um, Harriet Beecher Stowe Absolutely. and Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, they're the ones that connect us to these things that otherwise we're having a hard time connecting to. Uh, so I'm hoping that, uh, and, and I'm seeing evidence of this, that more and more storytellers will devote what they're doing to trying to connect us to this uh, situation, to this crisis that we're in. And your work is sort of going down some of those pathways and integrating more art, music, and multimedia types of presentations, it would seem. I have uh, dabbled in that. I've got a performance project. And in fact, we performed here in Missoula uh, last spring called right. The Crossroads Project. It combines music and a sort of a poetic scientific story and some very compelling imagery. And it has a very powerful effect on the audiences. We've done this performance in 40 sometimes across the country and, in fact, in a couple of other countries. Um, and then, but I think more, and that has proved, uh, um, effective, although it's a live performance and it happens a few hundred people at a time. Sure. You know, Taylor Swift has 120 million Instagram followers. Um, and if storytellers like her, who clearly connects to tens of millions of people. Oh yeah. My daughter's included. uh, (laughs) I see it every day. (laughs) So it's a powerful force. I think if Taylor Swift got on board with, um, climate change, your daughter, you find your daughter there following yeah. pretty quick. Yeah. So I think that's where the, the game is. And in fact, to that end, I actually teach a course at Utah State University on the Anthropocene, this age of humans, mm-hmm. this full suite of impacts we're having, to fine arts and humanities students. And the whole idea of the course is that they learn the science in the voice of science, but then they retell that story uh, as their final project in the course in their own artistic voices. 
So they get their feet wet in trying to uh, respond to this information and connect an audience of their choice to it any way they want. Yeah. That seems like the way through this multimedia approach, communicating, meeting people where they are. And, uh, you know, Rob, this has been fantastic. Thank you for coming in here on a busy day visiting Missoula. Uh, I think you'll find a warm and welcoming audience and an audience ready to take some action that you will inspire this evening. Thank you very much, Justin. Okay, I learned a ton in that one, and I hope that you did too. If you haven't yet, check out the great work of Climate Smart Missoula at missoulaclimate.org. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum, and interns Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.